Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks again for joining us uh, as we continue on in this series, The Problem of God. Today is actually the last part uh, in this five-part series on The Problem of God, and we're going to be looking at The Problem of Jesus. Uh, so next week, Pastor Kevin will be starting a new series on heaven and hell, and uh, I know you'll be excited to join us for that and engage with us throughout that series. Uh, we look forward to learning uh, truths about heaven and hell and how we can live that out uh, practically in our lives as well. Uh, thanks for all those that have been joining us as well on Friday nights on our Zoom calls. It was great to see so many of you this past Friday, and uh, Mark Clark, uh, the author of the book, The Problem of God, joined us as well, and so it was great to engage with him. He has a new book coming out called The Problem of Jesus, and so that's the book I'm going to be giving away this Friday. If you're the 10th person to join um, the Zoom call, then you can win that book, The Problem of Jesus. And this Friday, we're going to be looking at the problem of hypocrisy, which is sometimes a difficult topic. So join us on Friday. Look forward to seeing you. This will be our last Friday Zoom call in this series. Uh, and so look forward to hearing some of your thoughts and even reflecting back on the whole series. Um, so we're looking today at the problem of Jesus. The, the central figure in the Christian faith is Jesus. And today we want to look at him and his claims and see whether what he really said is, is true. And if so, I really believe that it can have a radical impact on our life. Now, a lot of people think about Jesus because he's a very famous person. They think of him as a, a great moral teacher, a wonderful person, uh, a person that had a great impact on society. And even other religions hold Jesus as a great prophet. But is that really what he claimed to be? Uh, the author C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on, on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Now here's the important thing. He says, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so what Lewis is saying here is that you could say all these nice things about Jesus. He was a great moral teacher. He was a great reformer. He had a great impact on society. He was such a kind human being and taught how to love others and all those things, but not going to say that he is God. What Lewis is saying is you can't have it both ways because that's not what he claimed to be. He didn't claim to be a great moral teacher. He didn't claim to be a, a great reformer of society. He claimed to be the son of God. And so either you have to reject all of his claims or accept him for who he says he is. Now, before we even get to that, what we really first need to look at, because sometimes uh, skeptics think, well, did Jesus really exist? Who is? The question is, who is actually the historical 
Jesus. Was Jesus really a person? Uh, on one of our Friday Zoom calls, we were talking about the Christ myth, and we talked a little bit about this, about the historical Jesus. And we, uh, we mentioned in that call about a, a New Testament uh, scholar named Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman's not a Christian, but he is a New Testament scholar that has studied this thing for 30 plus years. And he said this, he said about the existence of Jesus, he said not even an, that it's not even an issue for the scholars of antiquity. And Bart Ehrman got really sort of upset because people were saying that Jesus didn't exist and, and people that didn't really have qualifications, people that didn't really study uh, uh, ancient history uh, or, or New Testament history. And so Bart Ehrman actually wrote a book, again, not a Christian, but a New Testament scholar. He said that he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. And in the opening of his book, he writes this. Serious historians of the early Christian movement, all of them have spent many years preparing to be experts in their field. Just to read the ancient sources requires expertise in the range of ancient languages, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and often Aramaic, Syriac, and Coptic, not to mention the modern languages of scholarship, for example, French and, uh, German and French. And that is just for starters. Expertise requires years of of patiently examining ancient texts and a thorough grounding in the history of culture, uh, history and culture of Greek and Roman uh, antiquity, the religions of ancient Mediterranean world, both pagan and Jewish, knowledge of the history of the Christian church and the development of its social life and theology and well, lots of other things. So he's saying, you gotta really study this, right? If this is something that uh, you want to uh, really be uh, a scholar on. But then he says this, it is striking that virtually everyone who has spent all the years needed to attain these qualifications that he just listed is convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical figure. So when you think of uh, scholars of antiquity, this is really not a debate, right? Jesus did exist, the historical Jesus, the person Jesus, the figure Jesus really did exist. And when you look at sources even outside of the Bible, there are quite a number of them. Uh, there's a person named Julius Africanus who quotes the first century historian Tallius speaking about what happened at the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Another man, Mara Bar Serapon, was a first century philosopher who called Jesus a wise king. Pliny the Younger uh, wrote to the Roman Emperor Trajan about the lifestyle of the early Christians as they worshiped Jesus as God. Uh, Suetonius was a Roman historian uh, and analyst of the imperial house of the Emperor Hadrian, and he writes about Christians and how they were treated under the, em under the Emperor Claudius. Uh, the Jewish Talmud refers as well to Jesus a number of times, and the Talmud is a, is a collection of Jewish uh, rabbinical writings that were compiled between 70 AD and 500 AD. Now, some of the, the, the better-known sources is a man named Josephus, uh, and Josephus it was a Jewish scholar and a Jewish historian, and he writes this in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews. He says this, now around this time, again, this is not a Christian, this is not a, a, something in the Bible, this is a, just a, an outside source that says, now around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, 
For he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of people who gladly accept the truth. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he, when he heard him accused uh, by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross. But to those who at first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. And so Josephus was a, was a scholar that lived around the time 37 AD to 101 AD. This is what he writes about, about Jesus as a historical figure. Another um, Roman historian and, and po uh, politician was named uh, Tacitus. And uh, Tacitus uh, wrote in his book, Annals, uh, he's, now, Tacitus is considered one of the, the uh, from modern scholars, they consider him one of the greatest Roman historians. And Tacitus says in his, in his book, he says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most uh, exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, referring to Christ or Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the move moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So even Tacitus here, a, a well-respected Roman um, scholar and uh, politician writes about Jesus and the early, uh, early Christians. So the question of Jesus's historical existence is agreed upon by almost all scholars of antiquity. The harder question is this, is Jesus God, right? Jesus never said the words, I am God. And, and that's why skeptics often uh, claim that Jesus never actually said that he was God. However, we have to understand the culture. Uh, we have to understand the time. We have to understand how people communicated uh, at that time. Now, there are many false Christs and false gods and people that claim to be God. So for Jesus just to say, I am God, you know, it wasn't really a, a big thing. It wouldn't actually have the same amount of emphasis because there's other people that would have gone around and, and been messianic, being prophetic, and, and said things like that about themselves. So we have to remember and study and understand the cultural context of Jesus' words. Mark Clark says uh, in The Problem of God, he says, in every way that mattered in speaking to his own culture, and as we shall see, to our own as well, Jesus claimed clearly and directly to be God, utilizing the stories, questions, symbols, and activities that were recognized in the world in which he lived and taught. And so to understand the cultural context is really important. Most people that, that lived during Jesus' days were, were polytheists, meaning there, there were many gods, right? And so for someone just to claim that they were God was, was nothing strange or, or, or different. But the Jews, they were monotheists. They only believed in one God. It was very important to them that they would worship only one God and know the living and true God. And Jesus equated himself with that one true God. And that's what brought a lot of the contention and ultimately led to his death. Let's look at a few verses here. John 17 verse 3 says, And this is the way to have eternal life. Words, these are the words of Jesus. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And so we see here Jesus starting to equate himself uh, with the Father. 
Jesus saying that, hey, this is what is eternal life. Not just know the Father, but to know me as well. This is what true eternal life is. In Mark 14, 61 and 62, it says here, but Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, this is when Jesus was before the high priest, just before he was uh, convicted to be crucified. The high priest says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming in the clouds of heaven. So here we see him confessing and admitting and saying, yes, I am the Son of God. I am the Son of the Blessed. Now, when he says here, I am, this sort of actually relates back to something else Jesus said uh, while he was with the people and teaching and doing miracles. In John 8, verses uh, 56 to 58, uh, Jesus talking to the people talks about how he actually lived before Abraham. He talks about how he actually was God. He says here, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say that you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, it's not that he was speaking grammatically incorrect here or the, the gospel writers uh, wrote incorrectly here. There was actually a real connotation with what he said here, a real relationship when he says, before Abraham even was born, I am. Right? Now, in this statement here, first of all, there's two things. First, it affirms the pre-existence of Jesus, right? That, that he says, even before Abraham was, I am. So that he w even before Jesus came as a human being into the world, Jesus existed eternally with the Father, right? That's why in John 17, verse 5, it says, Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. There was a fellowship. There was a communion there. But going back to this verse in John, when Jesus makes the statement, I am, that's what really bothered the people. That's what bothered especially the religious people because it was in reference to the holy, precious name of God. You see, years before, the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And when God called Moses to go and, and bring the children of Israel out of captivity, and Moses asked God, and he said, well, if they ask me who, who has sent me, God said, tell them, I am that I am has sent me, has sent you to me, to them. And so this name I am was known and revered as the holy name of God. It's, it's found thousands of times in the Old Testament scripture, right? It, it, it was so holy that even the Jewish people uh, forgot about it uh, or forgot how to pronounce it properly because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. They were so careful to say it because it was the holy name of God. And here Jesus uses this name I am to refer to himself. And that was blasphemous in and of itself. They were a monotheistic faith, and now you have somebody like Jesus coming along and saying, I am. You have Jesus coming along and equating himself with God, equating himself with the holy, precious name of God in a monotheistic faith. It was crazy. This is what led to them killing Jesus, right? He was saying, I was the God that appeared to Moses, right, the greatest prophet and greatest religious leader that Israel ever had, right? He's equating to that time when Moses heard the voice of God that said, I am that I am. He, he, was, he was saying here, even before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was the father of their faith. So you can see the gravity, the weightiness of the words of Jesus here in claiming his deity, claiming how he was there even before Abraham, even before Moses. 
Jesus, when he was here on earth, he, he did so many miracles and, and he healed many times on the Sabbath day as well, which really infuriated the religious people of the time. And one time when he did that in John 5, um, he said, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him for he not only broke the Sabbath because he just healed on the Sabbath day, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God, right? And so here we see they were infuriated with him because he healed on the Sabbath, but even more so, he said and did blasphemous things in their eyes, in their viewpoint, because he equated himself with God. Now, if there's any doubt, let's look at this verse. John 10, verse 30, the words of Jesus, the Father and I are one, right? I don't know if you can get any more clearer than this. And the response of the people even affirms that they knew what Jesus was talking about. It wasn't a mystery to him because a couple of verses later in verse 33, it says, they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for the blasphemy, you, a mere man, claim to be God. They knew when he used those words. They knew the cultural context by which he was talking and expressing himself and saying those things and saying, I am, and, and equating himself with God. They knew what he was saying, and they acknowledged it. And they said, what you're saying is blasphemous because you're claiming to be God. See, Jesus wasn't just a, a great moral teacher. Jesus wasn't just a reformer. Jesus wasn't just a person that elevated the ideal of love and reached out to other people. No, there's something way better and way more important. That's that he claimed to be God. And so we can't just uh, explain away and say, well, I, I accept him as a great teacher or I accept him as a prophet. It's not what he was talking about. He said that he was God. And so if we accept Jesus, we have to accept the claims of his deity, of his divinity, right? We see that Jesus uh, said and did things that were attributed to deity. He taught people to pray to him. Uh, he accepted worship. He used a number of titles in the Old Testament that were used for God. For example, the Lord is my shepherd, and, and he himself said that he was the good shepherd. A number of, of different titles that Jesus used, and the early church and the apostles affirmed these things. Not only that, the miracles and healings that he performed in his name affirmed his divinity. Uh, in Jesus, the early Jewish church didn't abandon their understanding of a monotheistic God, but they actually saw the fulfillment of their monotheistic God in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And some of the early creeds really affirm this. We have, there's a number of uh, creeds that were developed by the, by the church in, in the first few hundred years of its existence after an oral culture of passing down some of these teachings and sayings and in order to make sure that it wasn't changed or there wasn't any heresies that came in, they put together these creeds. One of them is known as the Nicene Creed, which started in 325 AD. And, and part of it says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Then speaking about Jesus, it says, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Right? So 
part of the rest of the creed says, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And the rest of the creed talks about the role of the Holy Spirit. See, from the early church onwards, there was an understanding of Jesus being God. It wasn't something that was just created years and years later, centuries later. No, from the very time of the early church, even as we read today in Philippians chapter 2, just before we had communion, we read about that Christ hymn. That was a hymn that was constructed, believed to be constructed in the early church, so that the theology of who Jesus was could be repeated in song and confessed and, and biblical scholars think Paul was quoting from that, from that hymn. See, Christianity offered in the first century something that was unique that couldn't have been made up. Christianity offered something in the first century that was very distinct and different from everything else that ever happened in all of human history, even till today, distinct from all the other religions in the world today. And that's God becoming man. That the creator of the universe, leaving his throne of glory and taking on human form, would suffer and die for his creation. The incarnation is so unique in religious history. And to take it a step further, that God would choose not just to be incarnate in this flesh, but that God would choose to suffer and die to redeem his creation, to redeem humanity. It's such a unique and distinct experience that cannot even just be made up, right? In The Problem of God, Mark Clark quotes the, the celebrated historian and atheist Robert Wright saying, we can be pretty sure that the crucifixion actually happened in part because it made so little theological sense, right? If you're thinking about making a theology, if you're thinking about making up a religion, if you're thinking about doing something that people will follow, it's not what happened in Christianity, because in all the other religions, in all the other gods that, that quote-unquote have existed, they demand sacrifice. But here was a God who came down and instead of demanding a sacrifice, instead of demanding service, came to serve and came to offer his life as a sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. Who has ever heard of that before? Who could even make up something like that? And that's the power of the gospel that's still in effect today. For so many of the Jews, for Paul, for Peter, for John, for James, who were monotheists, to accept Jesus as God was absolutely radical. It was contrary to their whole upbringing, contrary to their whole culture, contrary to their whole way of life, contrary to everything they knew as holy and true because they were monotheists, believing in only one God. Yet they not only accepted it, they were willing to die for it. In something so foreign to them, in something so contrary to everything that they had believed and learned growing up, they not only accepted and embraced Jesus as God in a monotheistic religion, but they were willing to die for it. Why did they do this? How could they change their whole worldview? How could they change their whole outlook on life? because of the resurrection of Jesus, right? And that's what I want to look at today. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. See, the resurrection of Jesus 
is the most vital and important part of the Christian faith. And without it, everything else crumbles. Even Paul acknowledges this when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And in verse 17, he says again, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything he said and taught would be useless. Again, it's not because he claimed to be a good moral teacher. It's not because he claimed to be a reformer and a propagator of love. No. It's the resurrection is important because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Right? If, if the resurrection is irrelevant, right, then it's just because he was a good moral teacher. No. The resurrection is important because Jesus claimed to be God and there needed to be an affirmation of that, right? He claimed to have existed before coming into the world. He claimed to have had a relationship with God the Father. He claimed to have authority and power beyond this life. And so the resurrection not only gives credence to his moral teachings and the way of love, but it also gives credence to his claims as being God. So there are a number of evidences of the resurrection of Jesus and criticisms as well. I want to just summarize them into three main points. Now, I would encourage you to read some more and read other books. Uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a great book that outlines a lot of these uh, evidences and criticisms about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, N.T. Uh, Wright's book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is a huge book that uh, talks a lot about this in much more detail, and I'll reference it a little bit uh, as we go. But three areas. One, Jesus' tomb was empty. Two, Jesus' appearances after his death. And three, the disciples' faith in the resurrection. Okay? So very quickly here. The first thing, Jesus' empty tomb. They knew, the disciples knew, the Romans knew, everybody knew exactly where Jesus was buried, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The gospel writers specifically included the detail of his, uh, of this detail in the account of the resurrection, of the death and resurrection of Jesus, so that they could go back and check the tomb and make sure that it was empty. There's this specific detail that was mentioned. Actually, the first accounts of the resurrection of Jesus were actually found in the letters of the Apostle Paul, which were written about 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, right? And so because of that short time period, if Paul was writing about something that never happened, that never existed, he could be called out about it. But for example, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 says, I pass on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. See, Paul's letters show that the early Christians, again, 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, right, that he's writing these letters and that he's uh, building the, the, the church through these letters. And it shows that, that the early Christians not only believed, but they also proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus from the very beginning, Right? The tomb was empty. Right? If the tomb wasn't empty, nobody in Jerusalem would have believed Paul or Peter or the others. Remember, the movement started in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and buried. All they needed to do was produce the body of Jesus and then everyone would have said, see, it's not true. All the skeptics needed to do was produce the rotting body of Jesus and everything would have been halted. But they couldn't. Now, another theory is that some people say that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and took it away. 
Well, if that happened, then you'd have to answer another question. Why would the disciples and so many others, under the pain of torture and persecution, choose to die instead of, the, instead of reveal that they conjured up a great lie and a great hoax? Why would they choose to stay faithful to Jesus to the point of death and suffer immense persecution all to cover up a lie? They would have all had to come to an agreement to cover up this lie, and not one of them, and not even one of them could break in the time of severest persecution, right? The disciples, history tells us that the, the majority of the disciples, if not all of them, faced some sort of torture and persecution before they died. Even Jesus' own brother James, who seemed to have been a skeptic before Jesus' death on the cross, after the resurrection, James becomes a believer and a leader in the church, if he knew it was a lie, why would he want to die for it? Either they all died for something they knew was true and life-changing, or they all died to cover up a lie. You go where the evidence leads you. Second thing, Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. Jesus was seen by a number of people after his death. In 1 Corinthians 15, again, one of Paul's letters, right, during the time of the early church, he says, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. See, Paul's making a tremendous claim here that he was seen by more than 500 other followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. What Paul is saying, again, these letters are public documents. They're being sent around. And Paul is saying, hey, look, if you're doubting, if you're skeptical about this, just go and talk to one of the people that saw Jesus. Go and talk to Peter. Go and talk to the apostles. Go and talk to any of these 500 people that saw Jesus, right? He includes this information here so that the resurrection can be corroborated, right? He couldn't have said all of these things if there weren't any eyewitnesses or if the eyewitnesses were corroborating another story, right? All of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, right, point to the fact that it was truth. And anyone could go and check on it. He even says here, most of them are still alive. Also, this is a, a little bit of a difficulty. Also, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection in each gospel had one major problem that the first witnesses were women. If the story was made up, if the resurrection story of Jesus was made up, you do not use a woman as the first witness because women had a low social status at the time. Their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. If someone was going to make up a story, you don't make up the story with a woman as, a woman as the first witness. You use a man as the first witness because their word held more weight in that culture and at that time. Having a woman as a witness actually made the story less credible. And so N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he argues that there was probably a lot of pressure in the early church to remove the women out of the story that was passed about about the resurrection. But the problem was that the accounts of Jesus' resurrection was already widely circulated. And to remove the accounts of the women's testimony would cause... Uh, contradictions would cause problems. And so they couldn't change that. And so N.T. Wright argues that there's probably a debate going on in the early church to remove that part, but they stuck with the truth. We can't think of the resurrection as something that was formulated years later or centuries later. 
when this was something very real and tangible for the early church. The empty tomb, along with the eyewitnesses, saw that Jesus died, proved that Jesus died, but also that he rose again. And lastly, the disciples' belief in the resurrection. N.T. Wright, the scholar and historian, says he did a study on a non-Jewish thought of the first century Mediterranean world and found that almost universally, people thought that bodily resurrection was impossible. Now, the Greco-Roman world, the culture of that time, valued soul or spirit as good and the material world as something that was weak and corrupt. They viewed salvation as liberation from this body. The worldview that they had in that Greco-Roman culture was made actually resurrection impossible and even undesirable. Who would want to come back to this frail mortal body? They were more concerned in the immaterial, in the spirit and soul, right? Now, the Jews were the opposite to the the Greco-Roman culture. They saw the material world as something that was good to the point that they were waiting for their Messiah to come back and establish the kingdom of Israel again in this world, right? They wanted uh, to to be established in this world as the greatest kingdom such as it was in the days of David, King David. And they were waiting for their Messiah to come back. But... The thought of one person being resurrected while the rest of humanity continued to deal with death and sickness uh, and plagues and all those things was unheard of, right? The Jews would have asked at the time, they would have asked if you said if one person rose again, they would say, well, well, what about the rest of us? Is disease no more now? Is sickness no more? Because they were looking and waiting for a time when there will be a worldwide renewal, not a resurrection of one person, but a resurrection of everyone into a renewed kingdom, into a renewed world, right? See, individual resurrection was not a worldview that was accepted or thought or desired by Greeks or by Jews. For the disciples to make up the resurrection of Jesus, to steal his body, to say that he was alive, to say they saw something that they didn't was completely foreign to their way of thinking. It was completely foreign to the worldview that they possessed at that time. They would have had the hardest time even just convincing their friends about this. Because this was not their worldview. This was not their culture. This is not what they expected. This is not what they planned. This was completely opposite to all of those things, whether you were a Greek or whether you were a Jew, right? N.T. Wright says that there were at least a dozen other messianic or prophetic movements uh, within a hundred years either side of Jesus, okay? And all of them ended in the death of the founder. And he said that if the movement wanted to continue, they would say, okay, let's find a brother, let's find a cousin, and let's continue the movement. But they never claimed that their founder, that person, rose again from the dead. The early church, the followers of Jesus, had James, the brother of Jesus, who became a great leader. But no one ever said that James was the Messiah. No one ever said that James would take over the place of Jesus. No, they pointed to Jesus and said that he died and rose again. This is completely foreign to them. No other messianic leader, no other prophetic leader had ever claimed anything like this. This worldview was completely different, and that's why the disciples' belief in the resurrection was completely new and completely foreign to that culture. It's not something they would make up. The way that you explain why Christianity began and took the course it did is because of the resurrection. The resurrection was the propelling factor to the way that Christianity grew, the way that Christianity developed, the theology of the resurrection. 
right? So all of these things would be foreign unless they just decided to tell the truth. Timothy Keller says this in The Reason for God. The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It is not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must then come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. See, because the birth of the church and the resurrection of Jesus are so intricately intertwined together, right? This is what happened. The birth of the church was a completely new worldview, a radical, life-transforming, hard-to-imagine worldview that someone making up a lie wouldn't in their wildest imaginations think up about this because it would be too unbelievable and too hard to convince other people. Unless it was true and unless they saw it with their own eyes. Keller says this, after the death of Jesus, the entire... After the death of Jesus, the entire Christian community suddenly adopted a set of beliefs that were brand new and until that point had been unthinkable. The first Christians had a resurrection-centered view of reality, right? This was something completely new. This was something completely different. Because of what the early church experienced, there was a formation of a new worldview. That brings life and hope. They saw Jesus eating food in his resurrected body. They saw him entering rooms when they were closed. This wasn't a soulish body that the the Greeks might have thought about. It wasn't a resuscitated body that the Jews might have thought about. This was a completely new worldview of resurrection that could not have been imagined. It could not have been made up because it it would have been so hard to convince other people unless they actually saw it. N.T. Wright says that, uh, that all of these views of the resurrection was unique for its time. But a new worldview, he says, normally takes years of discussion, debate, and thought. People had to discuss and work things out. But the Christian view of the resurrection basically came up spon- uh, spontaneously, automatically after seeing Jesus. They didn't discuss and debate and criticize and develop and figure out how this worldview actually is going to be. No, it just came out because of what they saw. In Jesus. It was radical. It was different. But it was hope inspiring. Even if a couple of people thought about this worldview and said, okay, this is what it's going to be. Let's go and convince others. It's almost nearly impossible to do that. How do you account for the rest of the history of the church? The devotion, the boldness, the growth, the preaching, the fact that monotheistic Jews turned all of their devotion to Jesus? How do you account for that? Keller says every effort to account for the birth of the church apart from Jesus' resurrection flies in the face of what we know about first century history and culture. It just doesn't work unless it really happened and unless it was true. And T. Wright says in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is is, is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. We have to understand the culture of the day. 
We have to understand the worldview of the day. We have to understand how a resurrection of one person was so radically different from, what, from the Greco-Roman culture, from the Jewish culture. And to understand why the disciples believed what they believed and how the early church was started and propagated is intrinsically connected to the resurrection of Jesus because otherwise it would be completely foreign to their mind and worldview. Here's the question now. Why is the resurrection important? Now you might say to yourself, if you're listening in and you're a skeptic and you're thinking, ah, I don't know about all this. I can't believe in the resurrection. It's just impossible. Well, you're in good company because the first century Jews also thought that way. The disciples also thought that they, they were skeptical. They didn't know whether Jesus really rose again from the dead. Even Thomas, one of the 12 disciples said, I'm not gonna believe until I can put my hand into his hand, until I can put my hand into his side and see those, those marks. But what they had to start believing was the testimony of the other eyewitnesses. The only way they accepted it was either to see Jesus or to accept the testimony of others. And that's what we've actually tried to do throughout this whole series. So we've tried to present to you the evidence. We've tried to present to you a logical, reasoned approach at the Christian faith. Tackling some of the very difficult topics in a very logical, reasoned approach and hoping that you will look at the evidence and follow where the evidence leads. Is it more logical to believe this or more logical to believe that? Now, there's an element of faith that we all need. And logic and reason can only take us so far. Faith takes us the rest of the way. See, logic and reasoning and even seeing Jesus took Thomas only so far. But faith had to take him the rest of the way. That's why in John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is why the resurrection is important. Because it gives us hope for a restoration of all things. It brings meaning to everything that we're doing. If we care for the poor, then we seek to eliminate poverty because those acts of love can bring people to Jesus. If we care about justice, then we seek to end slavery because we love equity, we, we want equality, we want to speak up for the oppressed because those acts of love will bring people to Jesus. If we care about those that are going hungry and those that are in need, then we seek to feed those that are hungry because those acts of love and mercy bring people to Jesus. When we visit the sick, when we extend a helping hand to someone, when we forgive someone that's hurt us, when we go the extra mile, when we turn the other cheek, when we sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed, those acts of love and mercy point people to Jesus and a new hope that lasts forever. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Jesus gives us a hope beyond the grave. Jesus gives us a hope beyond this life. This was made really real to me this past week. Not that it wasn't before, but especially this past week. Because on Friday was the 20th anniversary of my dad's passing. On February 5th, 2001, I prayed a prayer that God didn't answer when I said, Lord, please don't take my dad, please don't take my dad when I found him unconscious. 
And God chose not to answer that prayer. But his love and mercy and grace I can see in marvelous and wonderful ways. And as I thought about it in these days, my heart was filled with faith and hope and joy that one day I will see my dad again. One day we will walk together. One day we will laugh again. One day I'll be able to give him a hug. One day I will see him smile. One day all pain will be gone and one day all sorrow will be no more. And one day, because of Jesus, one day because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all things will be made new. Friends, ultimately Jesus is the answer to our deepest desires because he gives us a hope that goes beyond this life. We've looked at so many things in this series and I hope that you look at the evidence and see where it points. Because in the marketplace of ideas, the holistic Christian faith has the most logical, reasoned answers that points us in the direction of Jesus to some of life's most difficult and hard questions. And I hope that you will see, not just for the resurrection, but because of the resurrection, and in every other area of our life, Jesus is the answer. And that if we look to him, we'll find hope that goes beyond this life. Jesus is the answer. God bless you.